Chapter 19 of Izzy Popenjoy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. Izzy Popenjoy by Antony Trollope. Chapter 19. Rather Boisterous. After all, he's very dreary. It was this that Adelaide Houghton spoke to herself as soon as Lord George had left her. No doubt the whole work of the interview had fallen on to her shoulders. He had at last been talked into saying that he loved her, and had then run away, frightened by the unusual importance and tragic signification of his own words. After all, he's very dreary. Mrs. Houghton wanted excitement. She probably did like Lord George as well as she liked any one. Undoubtedly she would have married him had he been able to maintain her as she liked to be maintained. But, as he had been unable, she had taken Mr. Houghton without a notion on her part of making even an attempt to love him. When she said that she could not afford to wear a heart, and she had said so to various friends and acquaintances, she did entertain an idea that circumstances had used her cruelly, that she had absolutely been forced to marry a stupid old man, and that therefore some little freedom was due to her as a compensation. Lord George was Lord George, and might possibly some day be a Marquis. He was at any rate a handsome man, and he had owned allegiance to her before he had transferred his homage to that rich little chit, Mary Lovelace. She was incapable of much passion, but she did feel she owed it to herself to have some revenge on Mary Lovelace. The game, as it stood, had charms sufficient to induce her to go on with it, and yet, after all, he was dreary. Such was the lady's feeling when she was left alone, but Lord George went away from the meeting almost overcome by the excitement of the occasion. To him the matter was of such stirring moment that he could not go home, could not even go to his club. He was so moved by his various feelings that he could only walk by himself and consider things. To her that final embrace had meant very little. What did it signify? He had taken her in his arms and kissed her forehead. It might have been her lips had he so pleased, but to him it had seemed to mean very much indeed. There was a luxury in it which almost intoxicated him, and a horror in it which almost quelled him. That she should love him as to be actually subdued by her love could not but charm him. He had none of that strength which arms a man against flatterers, none of that experience which strengthens a man against female cajolery. It was to him very serious and very solemn. There might, perhaps, have been exaggeration in her mode of describing her feelings, but there could be no doubt in this, that he had held her in his arms, and that she was another man's wife. The wickedness of the thing was more wicked to him than the charm of it was charming. It was dreadful to him to think that he had done a thing of which he would have to be ashamed if the knowledge of it were brought to his wife's ears. That he should have to own to himself to have been wrong to her would tear him to pieces that he should lord it over her as a real husband was necessary to his happiness, and how can a man be a real lord over a woman when he has had to confess his fault to her and to beg her to forgive him? A wife's position with her husband may be almost improved by such asking for pardon. It will enhance his tenderness. But the man is so lowered that neither of them can ever forget the degradation. And, though it might never come to that, though this terrible passion might be concealed from her, Still, it was a grievance to him, and a disgrace that he should have anything to conceal. 
It was a stain in his own eyes on his own nobility, a slur upon his escutcheon, a taint in his hitherto unslobbered honesty. And then the sin of it, the sin of it! To him it already sat heavy on his conscience. In his ear, even now, sounded that commandment which he weakly prayed that he might be permitted to keep. While with her there was hardly left a remembrance of the kiss which he had implanted on her brow, his lips were still burning with the fever. Should he make up his mind, now at once, that he would never, never see her again? Should he resolve that he would write to her a moving tragic letter, not a love-letter, in which he would set forth the horrors of unhallowed love, and tell her that there must be a gulf between them, over which neither must pass till age should have tamed their passions? As he walked across the park, he meditated what would be the fitting words for such a letter, and almost determined that it should be written. Did he not owe his first duty to his wife, and was he not bound for her sake to take such a step? Then, as he wandered alone in Kensington Gardens, for it had taken him many steps and occupied much time to think of it all, there came upon him an idea that perhaps the lady would not receive the letter in the proper spirit. Some idea occurred to him of the ridicule which would befall him should the lady at last tell him that he had really exaggerated matters and then the letter might be shown to others. He did love the lady. With grief and shame and a stricken conscience, he owned to himself that he loved her, but he could not quite trust her. And so, as he walked down towards the Albert Memorial, he made up his mind that he would not write the letter. But he also made up his mind, he thought that he made up his mind, that he would go no more alone to Berkeley Square. As he walked on, he suddenly came upon his wife walking with Captain de Baron, and he was immediately struck by the idea that his wife ought not to be walking in Kensington Gardens with Captain de Baron. The idea was so strong as altogether to expel from his mind for the moment all remembrance of Mrs. Houghton. He had been unhappy before, because he was conscious that he was ill-treating his wife, but now he was almost more disturbed, because it seemed to him to be possible that his wife was ill-treating him. He had left her but a few minutes ago, he thought of it now as being but a few minutes since, telling her with almost his last word that she was specially bound, more bound than other women, to mind her own conduct. And here she was, walking in Kensington Gardens, with a man whom all the world called Jack de Baron. As he approached them his brow became clouded, and she could see that it was so. She could not but fear that her companion would see it also. Lord George was thinking how to address them, and had already determined on tucking his wife under his own arm and carrying her off, before he saw that a very little way behind them the Dean was walking with Adelaide Houghton herself. Though he had been more than an hour wandering about the park, he could not understand that the lady whom he had left at her own house so recently, in apparently so great a state of agitation, should be there also in her best bonnet, and quite calm. He had no words immediately at command, but she was as voluble as ever. "'Doesn't this seem odd?' she said. "'Why, it is not ten minutes since you left me in Berkeley Square. I wonder what made you come here.' "'What made you come?' "'Jack brought me here. If it were not for Jack, I should never walk or ride or do anything except sit in a stupid carriage. And just at the gate of the gardens we met the Dean and Lady George.' This was very simple and straightforward. There could be no doubt of the truth of it all. 
Lady George had come out with her father, and nothing could be more as it ought to be. As to Jack and the lady, he did not, at any rate as yet, feel himself justified in being angry at that arrangement. But nevertheless he was disturbed. His wife had been laughing when he first saw her, and Jack had been talking, and they had seemed to be very happy together. The dean no doubt was there, but still the fact remained that Jack had been laughing and talking with his wife. He almost doubted whether his wife ought under any circumstances to laugh in Kensington Gardens. And then the dean was so indiscreet. He, Lord George, could not, of course, forbid his wife to walk with her father, but the dean had no idea that any real looking after was necessary for anybody. He at once gave his arm to his wife, but in two minutes she had dropped it. They were on the steps of the Albert Memorial, and it was perhaps natural that she should do so. But he hovered close to her as they were looking at the figures, and was uneasy. "'I think it's the prettiest thing in London,' said the dean, "'one of the prettiest things in the world.' "'Don't you find it very cold?' said Lord George, who did not at the present moment care very much for the fine arts. "'We have been walking quick,' said Mrs. Houghton, "'and have enjoyed it.' The dean with the two others had now passed round one of the corners. "'I wonder,' she went on, "'I do wonder how it has come to pass that we should be brought together again so soon.' "'We both happen to come the same way,' said Lord George, who was still thinking of his wife. "'Yes, that must have been it. Though is it not a strange coincidence? My mind had been so flurried that I was glad to get out into the fresh air. When shall I see you again?' He couldn't bring himself to say, "'Never.' There would have been a mock-tragic element about the single word which even he felt. And yet, here, on the steps of the monument, there was hardly an opportunity for him to explain at length the propriety of their both agreeing to be severed. "'You wish to see me, don't you?' she asked. "'I hardly know what to say.' "'But you love me?' She was now close to him, and there was no one else near enough to interfere. She was pressing close up to him, and he was sadly ashamed of himself. And yet he did love her. He thought that she had never looked so well as at the present moment. "'Say that you love me,' she said, stamping her foot almost imperiously. "'You know I do, but—' "'But what?' "'I had better come to you again and tell you all.' The words were no sooner out of his mouth than he remembered that he had resolved that he would never go to her again. But yet, after what had passed, something must be done. He had also made up his mind that he wouldn't write. He had quite made up his mind about that. The words that are written remain. It would perhaps be better that he should go to her and tell her everything. "'Of course you will come again,' she said. "'What is it that ails you? You are unhappy because she is here with my cousin Jack?' It was intolerable to him that anyone should suspect him of jealousy. Jack has a way of getting intimate with people, but it means nothing. It was dreadful to him that an allusion should be made to the possibility of anybody meaning anything with his wife. Just at this moment Jack's voice was heard coming back round the corner, and also the laughter of the dean. Captain de Baron had been describing the persons represented on the base of the monument, and had done so after some fashion of his own that had infinitely amused not only Lady George but her father also. "'You ought to be appointed guide to the memorial,' said the dean. "'If Lady George will give me a testimonial, no doubt I might get it, dean,' said Jack. "'I don't think you know anything about any of them,' said Lady George. "'I'm sure you've told me wrong about two. You're the last man in the world that ought to be a guide to anything.' 
Will you come and be guide, and I'll just sweep the steps. Lord George heard the last words, and allowed himself to be annoyed at them, though he felt them to be innocent. He knew that his wife was having a game of pleasant play, like a child with a pleasant playfellow. But then he was not satisfied that his wife should play like a child, and certainly not with such a playfellow. He doubted whether his wife ought to be allowed playful intimacy from any man. Marriage was to him a very serious thing. Was he not prepared to give up a real passion because he had made this other woman his wife? In thinking over all this his mind was not very logical, but he did feel that he was justified in exacting particularly strict conduct from her, because he was going to make Mrs. Houghton understand that they two, though they loved each other, must part. If he could sacrifice so much for his wife, surely she might sacrifice something for him. They returned altogether to Hyde Park Corner, and then they separated. Jack went away towards Berkeley Square with his cousin, the dean got himself taken in the cab to his club, and Lord George walked his wife down Constitution Hill towards their own home. He felt it to be necessary that he should say something to his wife, but at the same time was specially anxious that he should give her no cause to suspect him of jealousy. Nor was he jealous in the ordinary sense of the word. He did not suppose for a moment that his wife was in love with Jack de Baron or Jack with his wife but he did think that whereas she had very little to say to her own husband, she had a great deal to say to Jack, and he was sensible also of a certain unbecomingness in such amusement on her part. She had to struggle upwards so as to be able to sustain properly the position and dignity of Lady George Germain, and the possible dignity of the Marchioness of Brotherton. She ought not to want playfellows. If she would really have learned the names of all those artists on the base of the memorial, as she might so easily have done, there would have been something in it. A lady ought to know at any rate the names of such men. But she had allowed this Jack to make a joke of it all, and had rather liked the joke. And the dean had laughed loud, more like the son of a stable-keeper than a dean. Lord George was almost more angry with the dean than with his wife. The dean, when at Brotherton, did maintain a certain amount of dignity, but here, up in London, he seemed to be intent only on having a good time, like some schoolboy out on a holiday. "'Were you not a little loud when you were on the steps of the memorial?' he said. "'I hope not, George, not too loud. A lady should never be in the least loud, nor, for the matter of that, would a gentleman either if he knew what he was about.' She walked on a little way, leaning on his arm in silence considering whether he meant anything by what he was saying, and how much he meant. She felt almost sure that he did mean something disagreeable, and that he was scolding her. "'I don't quite know what you mean by loud, George. We were talking, and of course wanted to make each other hear. I believe with some people loud means vulgar. I hope you didn't mean that.' He certainly would not tell his wife that she was vulgar. There is, he said, a manner of talking which leads people on to, to, being boisterous. Boisterous, George? Was I boisterous? I think your father was a little. She felt herself blush beneath her veil as she answered. Of course, if you tell me anything about myself, I will endeavour to do as you tell me. But as for papa, I am sure he knows how to behave himself. I don't think he ought to be found fault with, because he likes to amuse himself. And that Captain de Baron was very loud, said Lord George, 
conscious that though his ground might be weak in reference to the dean, he could say what he pleased about Jack de Baron. Young men do laugh and talk, don't they, George? What they do in their barracks, or when they are together, is nothing to you or me. What such a one may do when he is in company with my wife is very much to me, and ought to be very much to you. George, she said, again pausing for a moment, do you mean to tell me that I have misbehaved myself? Because if so, speak it out at once. My dear, that is a foolish question for you to ask. I have said nothing about misbehaviour, and you ought at any rate to wait till I have done so. I should be very sorry to use such a word, and do not think that I shall ever have occasion. But surely you will admit that there may be practices and banners and customs on which I am at liberty to speak to you. I am older than you. Husbands, of course, are older than their wives, but wives generally know what they are about quite as well as their husbands. Mary, that isn't the proper way to take what I say. You have a very peculiar place to fill in the world, a place for which your early life could not give you the very fittest training. Then why did you put me there? Because of my love, and also because I had no doubt whatever as to your becoming fit. There is a levity which is often pretty and becoming in a girl, in which a married woman in some ranks of life may perhaps innocently indulge, but which is not appropriate to higher positions. This is all because I laughed when Captain de Baron mispronounced the men's names. I don't know anything peculiar in my position. One would suppose that I was going to be made a sort of female bishop, or to sit all my life as a chairwoman like that Mrs. Mildmay. Of course I laugh when things are said that make me laugh. And as for Captain de Baron, I think he is very nice. Papa likes him, and he is always at the Houghtons, and I cannot agree that he was loud and vulgar, or boisterous, because he made a few innocent jokes in Kensington Gardens. He perceived now for the first time since he had known her that she had a temper of her own which he might find some difficulty in controlling. She had endured gently enough his first allusions to herself, but had risen up in wrath against him from the moment in which he had spoken disparagingly of her father. At the moment he had nothing further to say. He had used what eloquence there was in him, what words he had collected together, and then walked home in silence. But his mind was full of the matter, and though he made no further allusion on that day, or for some subsequent days either to this conversation or to his wife's conduct in the park, he had it always in his mind. He must be the master, and in order that he might be the master, the dean must be as little as possible in the house. And that intimacy with Jack de Baron must be crushed, if only that she might be taught that he intended to be master. Two or three days passed by, and during those two or three days he did not go to Berkeley Square. End of chapter 19